Well, I want to welcome everyone who is a guest here this morning. Please know that if you're here with your family, maybe visiting from out of town on this special day, um, if this is maybe your first time, you just decided that today was a great day to come to West Park and check us out, just know that we are so glad that you're here. I am glad that you are here, and if there is any way that I or one of the other elders, uh, one of the people here this morning can be a blessing to you, please let us know, and I hope you'll come back. And to everybody else, I've never seen you looking so good before in my life as you are on this Easter morning. Um, I've never seen so many sport coats, dresses, and tucked-in shirts in the hub. This is incredible. It's, it's a, a, a moment just to stop and remark at how good God is. So, <laughs> all right, so let me shift. That was a pretty bad joke. Let me, uh, let me shift here this morning and say something that... I'm expecting a response too, because this is kind of how the church has done things over many, many years. So if I say, Christ is risen, then you say, there's an option. Either you could say, he is risen indeed, or Christ is risen indeed. Let's try that again. Christ is risen. Excellent. And that is our hope today. That's why we've gathered today. We are here to remember and to celebrate not something that happened 2,000 years ago, roughly, and has since then not really had any bearing. We're here to celebrate a, a living reality, a dynamic circumstance that happened as a result of Jesus walking out of a tomb on a Sunday morning, alive again, and not just alive again, but resurrected. And as we get into the scripture this morning, we're going to be reminded of that fact and celebrate the fruit of his victory over death. But not everyone holds this high view of resurrection. In fact, in a world where we are compelled to trust the science, we are likewise told that bringing someone back from the dead is the stuff of science fiction, not fact. And I just wonder what appeal we do have against a wave sometimes of naturalism that says the only things that exist are the things we can see, feel, and experience, and postmodernism that continues to say the only things that matter are the things that we internally decide are true. How do we make sense of the way to go forward when we consider something that the scripture says is so pivotal as the resurrection? We don't see people that we have said goodbye to in this life come back from the dead. We don't see it happening on a local or a national scale around the world. And if we're honest, it might be one thing to consider this morning that Jesus rose from the dead and count that as true, but there might be another part of you this morning that wonders if that's something that could ever happen to you. And what we'll find is that the Apostle Paul speaks to this struggle in 1 Corinthians 15. If you haven't opened there already in your Bibles, please do that now. 1 Corinthians 15. Um, we had read in our scripture reading this morning, verses 20 to 26. What we'll be focusing on is a text a little bit earlier in 15 that will cover 12 to 26. And I hope just to talk to you this morning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it means for you and me. And the theme here that I see is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the believer's future resurrection. 
And if there's any doubt in your mind this morning that that will happen to you who are in Christ, then this text of scripture will clear that up. And my aim is by the time we leave that you would be confident, that you would be worshiping the one who has delivered you from death to eternal life. And that if you don't know him today, that today could be the very day that you come to know Jesus and to walk out of here today in his victory. No longer in your doubts, no longer in your defeat, but in the certain victory of Jesus over your sins and over your death and the confidence of your future resurrection. Today we're going to focus on the centrality of the resurrection, why it's so central. Then we're going to talk about the facts, like why it's really a thing that happened in history. And then we'll conclude today by celebrating the victory of the resurrection. So if you would, look at verse 12 with me, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul begins by saying, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Now, Paul begins here on a, a bit of a downer, right? This point is on the centrality of the resurrection, right? Why is it so central to everything that Paul preaches and everything that a believer believes? But he has to deal first with the dilemma that he has found in this church. Um, in this time period, in the church in Corinth, there was obviously some question that the people had about the relevance of the resurrection or even the truthfulness of the resurrection. As Paul begins in chapter 15, he talks about the gospel and he says, here's what you got to remember first. This is what I preach to you. Remember this. All right, lots of people saw Jesus rise from the dead. This is totally relevant. It has changed my life. And then he gets into verse 12 and he says, all right, so let's go ahead and address an elephant that remains in the church of Corinth. You guys doubt the resurrection. And so Paul walks down this avenue that raises the question, what if? Maybe you've asked that question before. What if? You know, our culture likes, you know, to have these scenarios. Typically, some that I see that regard history are the question, you know, what if Hitler won World War II? Or what if the South won the Civil War? You know, multiple historical, alternate historical novels, TV shows, movies have been made to try to answer those questions. I mean, we're intrigued by points back in time and if they had converged just a little bit differently, what the ramifications would be for us now. Maybe you think about this on a personal level. Maybe your what if scenarios are more relevant to where you are, you know, what if I had left two minutes earlier? Would I have avoided that wreck? What if I had made a different choice at some insignificant point in the past? Would I have the same job? Would my kids have been born? Would I have found my spouse? You know, these questions can be entertaining at times, unsettling at others. And Paul introduces a what if question that should rock the Corinthian church, as well as West Park this morning. And he asks, what if Jesus Christ had never risen from the dead? And then he entertains that for several verses until we get down to verse 20. And I want to walk through that for just a little bit because 
these several scenarios that he raises, on the one hand, they give really bad news. It's like the worst version of alternate history. If Jesus had not risen from the dead, there would be really bad things going on right now. But because he did rise from the dead, all these bad things he talks about, they actually are good. They have actually been flipped so that the things he says we don't have, we do have. And we need to look at them in terms of their central place in our life and faith. The first thing is this. He says, if Christ is not risen, then there is no good news. Look at verse 14, if you would. Paul says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. I'll leave it there for just a moment. He, be, he goes on to say that your faith is vain. But Paul has staked so much of his message on the resurrection. There was a time that he went to Athens to preach about Jesus. It's in Acts 17. And as he gets on top of this hill and he begins to preach about Jesus, he gets to the point where he talks about Jesus rising from the dead and living victorious over sin and death. And the philosophers that were gathered around there, the Greeks, looked at him like he was crazy. And in their ears, they heard him talking about two gods. One was Jesus, this guy that was a part of the Jewish heritage, and some other guy named Anastasis, some other god named Anastasis. And that word, perhaps you've heard that before, it refers to Christ's resurrection. Even that song we sang this morning, Praise the Father, Praise the Son, has a, a subtitle, Anastasis. But in that day, people thought Paul was crazy. Who is this resurrected one? That's, to them, crazy talk. Why? Because they viewed the body as a cage that the soul desperately was trying to be released from, as perhaps a junky old car that the person inside was trying to get out of. And it's not too far off from how people think today. We tend to think that this body that we live in is all messed up, that sin has maybe racked us too much. Even as Christians, we might think this way. And that the true release will come someday when we're free of these bodies and we no longer have them anymore. But that's contrary to Paul's gospel. You see, Paul, when he preached, he talked about not only someday you rising in consciousness from the dead and living forever with Jesus in heaven as some disembodied spirit. Paul's gospel was that someday, if you trust in Jesus, you will rise from the dead bodily, just like Jesus did. And you will forever be a spirit and a body together. That this is something that you can never escape from and you don't want to. God's original, in original intent in creating you and me is that we would have bodies and that those bodies would be redeemed and that we would not just be raised from the dead, but that we would be resurrected. See, this is Paul's message. This is the good news this morning. But if Christ is not risen, then there is no good news. It's just as bad as we think. Furthermore, if Christ is not risen, then faith is worthless. In verse 15, Paul says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. You see, 
Paul's preaching and the people's faith who would latch on to that teaching would be all disrupted, all ruined, because if God had not raised Jesus from the dead, then the reality is the, the resurrection of Jesus is tied so closely to those who trust in him to be resurrected that if there is no resurrection from the dead of other people, then Jesus himself has never been raised. Now, we are linked with Jesus when we trust in him, so much so that Jesus' resurrection, as we'll learn in a little bit, was act one, and we are the concluding act when we someday will rise. So if Jesus did not rise, then there is no rising for us, and if we someday will not rise, then Jesus himself never rose. And our faith in these things is pointless. Furthermore, Paul says that in verse 17, if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins. Verse 17 says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. I was thinking about this since this past Friday. And if you weren't here for our Good Friday service, it was such a good service and so honoring to the Lord Jesus, full of scripture and full of a focus on his atoning death for us. But I have to think back and remember, if Jesus on the cross said, some of it is finished, or if he had said, in that moment, part of this is fulfilled, we wouldn't have any hope. We wouldn't have any confidence. It would be like singing the old song, Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid for some of it. The rest, it falls on me. You know, that, that's essentially how people live a lot of the time. We might sing Jesus paid it all, but if we don't believe that he has risen from the dead now and he is solidly victorious over your sin, that he really did pay for all of it, then if he has not risen from the dead, there is no verification that that had any effect at all. Because you see, if God did not raise Christ from the dead, then that would, that would be essentially God saying, all right, Jesus did not pay it all, and Jesus did not cover the sins of the people. His sacrifice was insufficient. And Paul said, to preach such a message would be to blaspheme God because God did raise Christ from the dead and by doing so proved that the resurrection paid it all, that the cross was sufficient. But you see, we often stop at the cross and Paul is encouraging us, don't stop at the cross, but see the empty tomb as the verification that your sins have been paid in full. You know, I think sometimes it's hard for us to really grasp what all this means. I think of, and I'm going to stop here for a minute, because I think when Jesus was on the cross, and what I learned this past week, and he said in that moment of agony, I thirst, Jesus was not conveying physical discomfort. I think as Jake reminded us in the Good Friday service, never once did he from the cross cry out about the physical pain. But in that moment of deep anguish and thirst, Jesus experienced 
what you and I do not want to experience, and that is the agony of separation from God and the ever-diminishing returns on an ever-increasing desire for sin. All of your sins and my sins were poured out on Jesus in that moment, and the wrath of God was aimed at him for those sins. And what did Jesus do? He took it all. If you have never suffered from dehydration or perhaps been in a place where you needed water, but you had a dangerous day or two without it, right? By day three, you're going to die if you don't get water. The, the increasing agony, it feels like your throat is turning in on itself. And imagine the agony of hell, knowing that you could never escape and that God's wrath was poured out there and that your desire is still for all of the sin that you could ever get. And it's an ever-increasing desire for an ever-diminishing return. Right? This is, this is horrible, yet Christ took it all. And by expressing this, he took the wrath for you and for me. If you will come to him by faith, so that Paul's statement here, if Christ is not risen, we are still in our sins, but since he is risen, we are freed from our sins because our sins were fully poured out on him. Paul goes on to say, if Christ is not risen, the dead are gone forever. Verse 18 says, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. This is a terrible thought, but those who have died already, this is Paul's way of talking about those in Christ who have died. He uses this other description. He says they have fallen asleep. It's a gentle way to describe what's happened for those that death no longer has dominion over. But he says, if Christ is not risen, then those who have passed away, they are gone forever. He uses that word perished. You know, in John 3.16, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That word perish is talking about the, the eternal dissolution of yourself. Right? We would, to, to be nothing, we, we look at this and we say, we don't want to be forever separated from God. We want to have the assurance of the grace of God. We want to have the forgiveness and Paul says, if we don't have a risen Christ, we don't have loved ones waiting for us someday. But since Christ is risen from the dead, we do have the assurance that those who have died have merely fallen asleep. But you see how central this is. It touches on so many points. We would have no good news. Our faith would be worthless. We would still be in our sins and the dead, our loved ones, are gone forever. And if this is the case, Paul says in verse 19, we are of all people most to be pitied. Verse 19 says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And here's the reality. If Jesus is not risen, but if he is still in that grave, in that hillside in Jerusalem, then there is no point to the Christian life. If there is no living Savior, if Christ is not risen indeed, 
then there is no point to living the Christian life. It would be better to be a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim or a Satan worshiper than to be a Christian. But Christ is risen. Christ is alive. And of all the people in the world to be pitied, it's not Christians. Christians are the people who are honored in this world. Maybe not in the eyes of those who don't believe, but in the scale of God, those who have come to Christ and yielded to him and follow him, there is no better place to be than those who have come and trusted in him. And so this morning, a question that I have for you is, first of all, is the risen Christ central in your life? Maybe you're here today and it's not typical for you to find yourself in a gathering like this on a Sunday morning. Jesus rose from the grave in order to gather people from all walks of life and from all over the world and from neighborhoods where you live and he's seeking you today. This is so central that you are here not by accident or even by your own choice, but by a God who loves you, who's alive, and is seeking people to follow him. And for those of us who do come here week after week, is the resurrection of Jesus, the living Christ, central to you? Have you fallen into maybe some traps that the Corinthians did, thinking that the, the resurrection of your body someday and a living Christ who reigns from heaven is not first on your thoughts, but maybe you struggle to keep it in your thoughts at all. Preach the gospel to yourself, that Christ died for you, that he was buried in your place, that he rose again, and that you rose with him, and that someday you will rise from the dead too, in a resurrected body, prepared to be with him forever. Right? This is central to our faith. It's not coincidental. It's not something on the side. It's essential to what you and I think and believe. Well, we need to get to the facts of Christ's resurrection and look at those. I hope to look at them more briefly. In verse 20, Paul exits the what-if world, and he comes back to reality because he says in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Thankfully, Paul concludes not by agreeing with his assessment of Jesus still in the grave. He says, no, in fact, Christ has been raised. This is the good news. And the rest of chapter 15 walks through the victory of Christ. We don't have time to look at it all today. But you need to go home, maybe today, meditate on the rest of this chapter and look for the ways that Jesus' resurrection has impacted the past, your present, and your future. We'll look at more of those by the time we end. But how do we know that he really was raised? Well, first, if we look back at the first eight verses just quickly, we'll see that there's the witness of changed lives. If you want to know if something is true, you've got to call in some witnesses. Now, the first witness that Paul refers to is in verse 1. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, 
if you hold fast to that word that I preached to you. Paul says the first testimony of the resurrected Christ are the people around you right now. Maybe you haven't thought about it this way, but you, brother and sister, who are here this morning in Christ, having trusted him, you are exhibit number one for the resurrected Lord today. Think about how the gospel changed your life. Paul even admitted this about himself in verses eight to 10. He said that Christ appeared to him. He was the most unlikely, unworthy guy for Jesus to appear to after his resurrection. But Jesus did it so that the world could see at that time that those who were the enemies of Christ could turn and be changed. That's something the world doesn't believe can happen. Right? Just like people would say, I doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. And by the way, even unbelieving atheists would look at the evidence. And there are some who would say, there's enough evidence here to conclude that Jesus really did rise from the dead. But apart from that, you think about what happened to you. You know, people in this world, just like they say, Christ Jesus could not have risen from the dead, they will likewise say, people can't really change who they are. You can't change someone's nature. But that's what the power of the gospel is all about. The message of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection is not just historical fact, but it is a point in history when it meets someone's consciousness and heart and they are convicted, they change from the inside out. There is the witness of changed lives. The message continues even today. Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried. Christ was raised on the third day. And Christ was seen by multiple witnesses. We are certain that Jesus continues his work to change people. Now, you might recall a rather strange verse in Matthew chapter 27 that says, it's Matthew chapter 27, verses 52 and 53. This was after Jesus had died. Matthew inserts kind of a, an editorial comment about something that happened on Resurrection Day, Sunday. He said, the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now picture this weird scenario that Matthew is describing here. After Jesus rose from the dead, and you can think of it in kind of this timeline, Jesus dies, and as he dies, the curtain is torn in two, and an earthquake happens in it shatters the graves that are around Jerusalem. Jesus is buried in Joseph's tomb. And then Saturday is the rest day. And Sunday morning, Christ rises. And then all of these people who had died already in Jerusalem in ages past got out of their graves and started walking around Jerusalem and telling people about Jesus. Think how weird it would be on that Passover weekend 
to see King David walking around, to see Isaiah there again. These people from the past, and I don't know if they were the ones who came out of their graves and went out into the city and were talking to people, but Matthew inserts that not as kind of some weird illustration that didn't really happen, but in the flow of things, he's remembering back and he's saying, man, let me give you a preview of what's about to come, right? These are the people who have been changed. Their faith was looking forward to the Messiah and all that he would accomplish. And as a result of their faith, they got out of their graves and were walking around in resurrection bodies. That is an amazing reality. And what it points to is that the changed lives of people around us, someday that will happen to us too. And if that's not enough, we have the witness of Scripture. And this is what Scripture has always said. Why did people from the old and maybe the intertestamental period get up and walk around after having died? Well, the Scripture talks that the king would do this. In the passage Jake preached from us, let's consider that. Isaiah 53, verses 9 and 10. This is what it says in those verses about his death, his burial, and resurrection. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When he makes an offering for guilt, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Long before Jesus of Nazareth ever was born, lived, died, buried, and rose from the dead, Isaiah prophesied about this hundreds of years earlier. And again, that message reminded us of the power of the Old Testament pointing forward to a time and that all of Scripture testifies about Jesus. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says that Christ was buried, that he rose again, that he died, and that these things are all according to the scripture. The scriptures testify that God's point in giving us the Old Testament was to point forward to Christ and all that he would accomplish. And those who believed in God's promise up to that point were saved, delivered, and resurrected and it's certain, if we trust in Scripture, that if we trust in Christ, someday we will receive that resurrection too. This Scripture is our witness, and it's an unbroken chain of authority. And the question really is to you and me, do we trust the Bible and what it says? I need a solid ground to stand on in this time period that we live in. I need something that is beyond the opinions in my brain or even the smartest opinions of the people that I look to. I need abiding, everlasting truth. And what this scripture says is true. And it says what I need and what you need. Furthermore, there was beyond the witness of changed lives and the witness of scripture, there were eyewitnesses. Paul talks about this at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. He says that, verse 4, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, 
in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, so them, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why is this so important? In God's arrangement of the Old Testament law, all you needed to verify that something was true in a court of law was to have two witnesses. This is so central and important that God stacked up hundreds of witnesses to the risen Christ. And the end of our gospels are all united, that Jesus rose from the dead and that people walked around with him and spent time with him. And it wasn't like he exited the tomb and was limping or crawling around, abused and beaten because of the crucifixion. I think that's what people might have thought in their minds, that if he does come back, it will be a long road back to health for somebody who has been so broken. But Jesus came out in perfect health and walked around, still bearing the scars of his crucifixion, but that was intentional to show that he had forever borne the stripes for the people that Isaiah 53 said he would bear. And now, when people saw him, they had a hard time believing that it was really him. This morning, I read this story of those walking on the Emmaus Road. And there must have been something just different enough and perhaps something that Jesus was doing to withhold his identity from them for a season. But still, to think that this person who has just been through crucifixion is now walking around going miles in a journey, and people coming back from that encounter with hearts burning to tell other people about it. This is the power of the eyewitnesses. And we can't discard this. We can't disregard it. There are too many people placing too much hope. And for us here this morning, I, I wanna say to you, if you have put your faith in Christ, you've seen too much. You can't go back. Your hearts have been captured by Jesus, and I know that you could still entertain doubts, and I know that you would still worry about the future, and I know that you wonder at times if it's all going to work out the way that Jesus says, but we've seen too much. We can't go back now, and I want to encourage you to endure, to turn back to the witnesses in Scripture and to take in what they've said to worship Jesus and to spend time with him, he is still alive. I want to end with the victory of the resurrection. I want to talk about that this morning. We've established, I hope, that the resurrection is central, that it is provable fact. It really, it's true. It really happened. But what does it mean? With what is provided in this passage, what's promised here, is it really a certain reality? Can we trust in this? Well, for certain, we who are in Christ walk in the victory he won in the resurrection. Here's what we have to look forward to. If you will, look at verses 21 through 23 for a moment. It says, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Now, Paul uses the word first fruits back in verse 20 to describe Jesus. It says that he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This word first fruits describes an initial resurrection and a future resurrection. You might recall that earlier I said Jesus' resurrection is like act one and our resurrection in the future is like act two. It is the culmination of what he inaugurated when he rose from the dead. What does this have to do with Adam? It has everything to do with who we most identify with and who identifies us. Now, if you want a more full description of Adam and Christ and being in Adam and in Christ, I would encourage you to go back and listen to our message on Romans 5. But for the sake of our time here this morning, the, the issue really is about who defines you now. Now, each of us are defined initially by Adam because the Bible describes him as God's head that he put in charge of all humanity. Everything flows down from him. Whatever he did has an effect on us. And his initial rebellion and his disobedience way back in the Garden of Eden has such damaging and eternal ramifications on you and me today. So we could be identified by Adam and his original sin and our sin that we add to it and make it worse. Or we can be identified and we can be described as in Christ. This is the typical way that Paul describes Christians. He rarely uses that word Christians. He rarely uses the word disciples. The way that he describes believers is people who are in Christ. This is the protection that Christ offers and has accomplished for all who would come to him. It's like taking off an identity and putting on a new identity in the only way that we ever can. This is Jesus so identifying with us in his life, in his death, that we can identify with him who became one of us and accept and submit to him as our new head so that everything he accomplishes comes down to the rest of us, so that we are included in everything that he accomplished, so that, in a sense, we're looking to get somewhere and get something that we could never afford, and we come to find that Jesus has indeed paid it all. Maybe you kids here are excited if you ever get to go to Dollywood. All right, it's one of Tennessee's best parks. Maybe it's the best in America, arguably. Right. But there was a time when my family was given friend passes to get in. Right. We looked at the price and we said, we can't do that. But then someone offered us friend passes. And you know what? We got to the gate. And this was, maybe you can't do this anymore. I don't know. And we just showed them the friend passes. And we were like, yeah, we're friends with this guy. And we got in. We didn't pay for anything. <laughs> we could enjoy fully everything on the inside of those gates. And it was all thanks to those who had paid the price for us to get in. All right, so 
Next time you kids or middle schoolers or teenagers get to Dollywood, and if you actually get in through a friend pass, maybe you could give people friend passes so that they can experience that. And they can remember, we walk into Dollywood based on the payment of others. And everything we get to experience is from their blessing. We get to experience every benefit of Jesus. It's like getting to the gates of heaven and saying, you know, why, why should you get here? Jesus has covered all this. You're like, I know Jesus. Jesus paid for all of it for me. And God would say, I'm satisfied with him. I'm satisfied with you. All right, that's good news. This is what the future resurrection is about. It's about getting to come up from the grave. And just like those people in Israel on that resurrection day a long time ago, we will get out of our graves someday when the king returns and he puts everything in order and he says, get up, come up here and be with me. We will be reunited with bodies that will be made new and perfect for all eternity, the future resurrection. We will also have justice. Verses 24 and 25 says this. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Right? This text tells us that Jesus reigns now, and he will reign until every enemy that you and I have in this life will be put under his feet. That's a way of saying he will conquer them all. We often sing, and we did on Friday night, a song by Andrew Peterson called, Is He Worthy? On that same album, um, he, will, he has a song called, Rise Up. And one of the verses says, if a thief would come to plunder when the children were alone, if, if he ravished every daughter and murdered every son, would not that father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant on the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. And we have enemies and the Lord is not ignorant of those enemies right now. And we are not the ones to revenge or get revenge or exact vengeance in the name of Christ. But someday Jesus will put everything right. All sin, all misdeeds, all lies, all those who would abuse others and sell them into slavery, if they do not turn, if they are people, to submit to Jesus, then someday they will be under the feet of Jesus. We don't desire this. We would desire that they turn, but someday things will be made right. Await the day of his return. Justice will come in all the right ways. And finally, death is defeated. Verse 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, admittedly, sometimes we wish it was defeated even now. It'd be nice if it said, the first enemy to be destroyed is death. But in this way, we grow in confidence and faith, not in what we can see, but in the unseen. And in the Lord who told us 
that the way to truly live is to die. And if we would be fit to be with him forever, then these bodies need to be changed. And the way that they are changed is through death. C.H. Spurgeon once preached on death, and he encouraged his congregation with these words. He said, Brother, you do not want dying grace till dying moments. What would be the good of dying grace while you are yet alive? A boat will only be needful when you reach a river. Ask for living grace and glorify Christ thereby, and then you shall have dying grace when dying time comes. I think it's important for us to know the grace that God gives for the accomplishment of his mission to defeat even death may come on the other side of our own death in this life. It may be that it will be accomplished before we ever die physically in this world, and we will be changed in an instant when we see him. But either way, if we die in this life before he comes, or if we live to see him come back, that process that takes place will be the process of resurrection, the defeat of death, where it does not have the final word, and those who have died, they find that it isn't death to die. It is actually the entrance into life. Sovereign Grace Ministries has a song called, It Is Not Death to Die, for it is sung at a funeral. And the chorus says this, O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. So today, on this Resurrection Sunday, we have discovered that it's central to believe that someday, just as Jesus rose bodily from the grave, we will rise bodily as well if we are in Christ. It can't happen any other way. And that this is factual. It's rooted in historical truth. And that it's a victory that we walk in, not anything that we do. And so, fellow believer, is this what you are walking in now? And my friend, if you are here and you are not in Christ, meaning you are not a believer, you, you don't trust in Jesus, today can be the day that you place your confidence in his finished work, both of the cross and of the certain victory that he won by rising from the dead. Let's pray, and then we'll gather again to worship. Have mercy on us, Lord, to remember these things, to know the certain reality of our risen Lord, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. And I pray that we would be renewed, we would be inspired to worship you, to live in light of these realities and the victory that you've won, and to know that even death, a bitter enemy, that may be even threatening some in this room here this morning, is not the last word. Not even in your mercy they might find through your blood that it is not death to die. I pray that today would be the day that some would come they would confess Jesus and that they would worship him. 
just pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.